Welcome to the Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Welcome back to the Feathered Desert, everyone. Today we are going to be talking troubleshooting. We're going to talk about troubleshooting with doves, pigeons, and grackles at your feeders. Now, before your blood begins to run cold, we're going to talk about <laughs> we're going to talk about what makes these birds interesting birds. Most of the time, our bird feeders here that come to the store and talk to us, they want to know how to get rid of these birds. How do I get rid of them? But there's some really interesting things about these birds. So we're going to talk a little bit about them first, and then we're going to talk to you about some of the ways that you can keep them away from your feeder. All right. So the first one we're going to start with today is the rock pigeon, and I'm going to talk about the rock pigeon, aka the rock dove, the domestic pigeon, the homing pigeon, the feral pigeon, the highway pigeon. But these are all actually Columba Livia, which is their scientific name. So they're all the same bird. You guys are all gonna recognize this bird regardless of where you live, if you live in the rural areas, if you live in an urban area, anywhere you have been where there's a building in your life, there's going to be a rock dove. Or a rock pigeon is what we currently call them now. Historically, rock pigeons have been associated with humans for approximately 5,000 years. That's a really long time. That is a long time. In that 5,000 years, we've actually raised them for food, for their homing abilities, and for really their pretty colors. So talking about homing abilities, there was actually an ancient pigeon post in Babylon. That was a long time ago. Oh my gosh. Yes. And Egyptians also used homing pigeons, as did the Romans. And even today, there's a small group of people who still use rock pigeons as homing doves. Uh, so very interesting with the homing there. So three things that we use them for. And due to that domestication, there are now essentially five well-known colors. And we've all seen the natural adult, which is the one that strikes anger into <laughs> the chest of everyone that feeds birds in their backyard. And the natural adult has that dark head, uh, kind of a dark gray iridescent neck. It's got a pale gray body and that has two black bars on its wings. So that's the regular natural color that you would get. Since we have bred them for their different colors, we now have a checkered adult, which is actually very similar to the natural adult, but instead of just two black bars, it has striping that kind of goes all the way down its wings. So it's a thinner white stripe. That's the checkered adult. Then there's a dark adult, which is all black, except for the sear in front of its uh, beak and its little legs will also be pink. Then there's a brown adult, which I have never seen one of these ever, but it's a, a kind of a rusty brown color all over. They're extremely rare, according to the, all the books that I've seen. And then there's the pied adult, which can be any of those colors that we just discussed with large patches of white in it. Hmm. And yes, the one thing that these guys will all have in common that you can tell, this is the rock pigeon. They all have that white sear, which I just mentioned, which is actually the fleshy covering at the base of hmm. the beak. That's where their nostrils or nares are. That'll be white, and then their legs will be pink. So I have a question. Yes. Okay. So are their feathers iridescent? Because, you know, in the first one you mentioned, the coloring, they have some iridescent uh, feathers. Yes, the natural adult has that iridescent coloring right on the back of its neck. And you can see that in the checkered adult, but nobody else has that oh, iridescence okay. on the neck. Except for maybe a pied adult, you can, because with the pied adult, you can get so many different yeah, uh, you, you color combinations. You don't know what you're getting. So the rock pigeon is actually native to Western and Southern Europe. 
North Africa, and South Asia. You notice I don't say anything about the United States. <laughs> but they were actually introduced to the U.S. and in Ireland, where they easily adapted to our urban areas. So that's two areas that they were adapted, uh, or sorry, introduced, U.S. and Ireland. And now they've pretty much taken over. You can go to any cityscape anywhere, and you're going to see these guys. Yeah. yeah. So another interesting thing about these guys is that they're actually non-migratory. Uh, because, well, they live in our cities. Well, our cities are there all the time. So they're non-migratory ground foragers that are attracted to seeds, fruits, berries of almost any kind of berry. And they eat these items whole. So really when I say they're attracted to seeds, fruits, berries, they're pretty much attracted to anything that fits in their mouth. And that includes <laughs> trash, uh, um, french fries. I saw one of them eating Chinese food the other day. So if it fits in their beak, they're going to eat it. Uh, in a native natural setting, which is not going to be our urban city, they're actually seen in flocks of five to ten. That's the group number that they like to stay in. But of course, if any of you have been to the main city here, I know in Phoenix there are areas that are just covered in 20, 30, 50. So they can easily handle those kinds of large flocks in an area where there's a lot of resources. So that is our rock pigeon. And let's learn about another one of our interlopers, the morning dove. Yes, the morning dove. So for those of you who um, have trouble differentiating between the different types of morning doves, the different types of doves we have here, the morning dove has a, um, is smaller, has a soft gray-brown body, has a gray patch on the head, black dots on its wings, and a single black spot behind and below the eyes. It has a long tapered tail and which with a white edge. And the dove's habitat generally is open to semi-open, um, very, li very little vegetation. And they frequent things like places like parks, area, um, prairies, farms, grasslands, and lightly wooded areas, which to us, right, that sounds where we live. Um, they generally are absent from swamps, which we generally don't live in, forest, uh, with large trees, um, overgrown forests, and doves have adapted again, just like pigeons, to uh, well-urbanized cities and farms. So the what's interesting about the morning dove, which I actually found to be a very interesting bird, um, it has several things that in an, in its own helps it be um, successful, and it is the most successful, most prolific North American bird. So it ranges from southern Canada all the way down into Central America. It has a warning whistle. So you ever wondered when um, doves take off, you hear that uh, whistling sound with their wings? Well, that actually is uh, on there on purpose. They make that sound on takeoff so that one bird can take off and alert all the other birds. So instead of vocalizing, because that keeping their vocalizing down is another way that they fly under the radar. Um, they use their wings and it um, lets the other doves in the area know that there's a predator or danger. Oh. Well, that makes or it a walking, little less annoying to yeah, me now. <laughs> or you're walking out on your patio, which is generally how I experience it. Right. <laughs> They're um, <clears throat> swift on the wing. Morning doves, their long pointed wings and tails are features that help it increase speed. So once it takes off, it um, can very quickly accelerate to 55 miles per hour. 
Wow. And that's its main defense for predators from like anywhere from, well, what hunts it? Um, hawks, falcons, uh, bobcats. Another note is that uh, I just mentioned that they are very prolific, but they have a nesting cycle, again, that is the largest uh, in North America of any bird, um, and they have six clutches a year. Wow. They have two eggs per clutch, not one, not three, always two. Wow. And another inter interesting thing about it is that it takes both parents to uh, raise their uh, nestlings. Uh, parents uh, share incubation, incubating, and so the males will incubate the eggs during the day. The females take the night shift. I've also found this interesting. Morning doves will lure predators away from their nests by pretending to be injured. They'll feign a broken leg. Now, mm. I know that killed deer will feign a broken leg or um, a broken wing, but I didn't know that morning doves did that. So if you see a morning dove, an adult morning dove, and it's kind of floundering around um, as you're approaching it, and you think it's injured, it may not be injured. It may have a nest five, six, seven feet above um, where you're standing, and it's trying to detract, detract you from that. So it might be best to take a step back and see whether it can fly away or not before you rescue it when it really doesn't need rescuing. Wow, that is very interesting. Okay, well, let's look at another one of our introduced species, the Eurasian collared dove. So once again, let me tell you what it looks like so you can differentiate between all of our doves and pigeons that we have here. <laughs> this Eurasian collared dove is bigger than the morning dove, eh, maybe a little bit smaller than your rock pigeon. So it's in the middle there. This one is going to be a pale gray with darker wingtips. And the big giveaway is the dark half collar of black markings on the back of the neck, thus the name collared dove. There are different types of collared doves. The one that's very common here in the valley, the Eurasian collared dove. And the Eurasian collared dove is native to India, Sri Lanka, and Myanmar. I put that in there just because I like to say Myanmar. Myanmar. It's a fun yeah. name to say. And they're also widespread in Europe. They were actually introduced to the Bahamas in the 1970s and some enterprising birds flew to Florida in the 1980s is when we first started seeing them. So they came from the Bahamas to Florida. And once they were in Florida, they were able to just free range all over the entire United States. But it took many years for us to even discover that they were a collared dove because they were mistaken for the ringed turtle dove for years. So it was only in the late 1980s that people started saying this doesn't really look like a ring turtle dove. Maybe we should look into this. And by that time, it had already spread over the United States. It's not quite as prolific as the morning dove um, or the rock pigeon, but we definitely see them here in our area. I know that I have at least two, probably every two weeks that comes by my feeder, checking things out, and I just give them the evil eye, and then they don't come back the next day. But uh, this is also a non-migratory bird as well because uh, they are ground foragers looking for seeds, greens, soft fruits, and once again, garbage. So since those are the things that they're looking for, especially in our area, we have those things year round. So there's no reason for them to migrate at all. The interesting thing I did find out about these guys was that they're usually only um, individually or in pairs. And coming to think of it now, I don't see giant flocks of Eurasian collar doves. If you're seeing large flocks of pigeon-like birds, it's usually the rock pigeon or the morning dove. And then occasionally you'll see this bird in there with that little mark on the back of his neck, which is that half collar. 
and the collared dove. And they usually are by themselves or in pairs. And that's pretty much how they live their lives is once they find their mates, they stay with them for obviously as long as they can, as long as nature allows them to be together. And that's pretty much how they hang out. So I'm okay with just having a couple of doves yeah, around. that's all right. All right, let's learn a little bit more about our white-winged dove. Uh, the nemesis of most people in this area <laughs> who uh, feed the birds. But, you know, white-winged doves, it is, um, outside of, I believe, the Inca dove, it's the one that's a true native to the southwest. This is actually a migratory uh, dove. It comes up from Central America and Mexico, and summers here um, in um, our southwest. If you have, if you're one of the few that hasn't recognized or doesn't know what the white-winged dove looks like, they are um, have white crescents on their wings, and when um, the wings open up, they open up to white flashing bands on the underside that you see in flight. Um, the dove, a white-winged dove, has a bright orange eye with um, blue eyeshadow or a blue ring around it. So they're actually their face is very pretty, and um, it, it's the fact that they come in not threes but thirties that just drive you um, absolutely crazy. Uh, the white-winged dove comes up from Mexico um, to feast on our cactus fruits and the flower nectar from our cactuses. They love, um, they're a very important pollinator for the sororo cactus. And we would not have the Sonoran de Desert with our beloved sororo cactus without the um, white-winged dove. They go hand in hand. And the doves are so dependent on the sororo cactus and cactus flowers in, in general that they time their migration and nesting to match the cacti's fruiting um, schedule. Now, white-winged doves actually suffered severe declines in their populations um, when we started urbanizing and suburbanizing um, their desert habitat. But like doves and pigeons in that family, they're very adaptable and they have learned to um, get along with people. But they are attracted to desert landscapes. Which we have a lot of around Which here. Which we have a lot of. <laughs> They've rebounded in population, and um, I don't really, I couldn't find any information telling me that they were moving further north, but they're definitely moving a little further east and west. Hmm. So they're expanding that way. And what I found really interesting is that they're long living. So the oldest white-winged dove lived to be 21 years old in nine months, and it was originally banded in Arizona and then we covered later in New Mexico. Wow, that is quite a long time for a small bird. Now we do have another native that we discussed earlier. Shara mentioned the Inca dove. This one is native to our southwestern areas, and this is one of our smallest doves that we have in this area. And most people who see the little Inca dove, you don't hate it, even if it's at your, you could have 25 of them at your feeder and you're like, oh, they're so adorable. Because they are very small. They're only 1.6 ounces. And so I cute. throw that in there, right, because they're very small. And they're a pale gray, and they have dark scalloped or scaled markings on their back that kind of looks like those cartoon versions of fish scales. And that is on their back and down in their wings. 
Now this one I didn't realize until I saw a picture of them because I rarely see them flying away. I see them just in the dirt, usually underneath my feeders and doing a little dust bath or just checking out for some seeds. Their primary feathers are actually a rust red. So when they flash those wings out, it's a bit of a surprise. And there is another dove that is similar to them, the ground dove. We don't see it very often here, but to tell the difference between the Inca dove and the ground dove, the Inca dove has a longer tail. Okay. So if you are a little, if you're on that border of the ground dove, which is not typical in our valley area here in Arizona, then once you see that long tail, you'll know that it is the Inca dove. So the Inca dove is actually native to southern U.S., not strictly southwestern, but they are found in southern California, southern Nevada, southern Arizona. And you see the southerns here as our pattern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> southern New Mexico. They're found in Texas and then all the way over to western Louisiana. So they do cover a bit more of our area than our white-winged dove. Yes. These guys are non-migratory uh, ground foragers, once again. They do look for seeds and berries. That's generally what they're looking for is whatever drops down from your feeders, if you see them underneath your feeders. And they're also seen in smaller groups, usually three to 10. And one of the most interesting thing about these guys is they overwinter in areas that do get cold. And so to keep themselves warm, they build little birdie pyramids. They're so cute. It is. Um, we will put on our show notes. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to find a good uh, site the, to show you some pictures of these guys. But they do form little birdie pyramids. And we're not even 100% sure. Maybe that's where they get the name Inca dove from because they're not actually found where the Incas were traditionally found living. And maybe it's because they make little pyramids, but they will. And it can, the pyramids can have up to 12 individuals. And usually what happens is the ones on the outside of the pyramid will start wiggling. They're like, oh, I need to get a little bit warmer. And they'll try to wiggle in and then the whole pyramid will fall apart. <laughs> but that is how they keep themselves warm over the wintertime when it gets really cold. Now, before you were talking about the morning dove making that uh, whistling noise, the warning yeah. whistle to yeah. leave, everybody leave. The Inca dove actually does something similar but it's probably not necessarily a warning for other birds to leave. It is hopefully a warning for whatever may be sneaking up on them. When they actually take off, their wings produce a quiet rattle, a dry rattle that sounds like a rattlesnake. Oh. So as they take off, they're uh, hoping that that will ward off whatever may be coming uh, towards them. So if you're ever out hiking and you hear a rattlesnake noise and you see a bird fly away, it was probably that Inca dove. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that fascinating that feathers can make noises like, yes. like that? Yes, it really is very interesting. Now, as we said before in the beginning, these birds are actually super interesting birds. They're all in the family Columidae. And there are two things that make the Columidae family incredibly interesting when it comes to birds. So we're going to tell you these things so that you can appreciate some of the birds that drive you a little bit crazy. We're going to tell you about two of these things that make them very interesting. Okay, the first thing is um, they all produce crop milk, which is um, a liquid secretion inside uh, that comes from the lining of the esophagus of these birds. But what actually is a crop? So a crop is a muscular pouch that is an extension of the bird's esophagus and is used to store excess food prior to digestion. Now these birds have crops. There are other birds that have crops and there are 
a few birds, two other birds actually, that uh, outside of this family, that the crop milk is a secretion from the lining of the crop milk of the parent bird, and it is regurgitated to the young. It's found in all pigeons and doves, flamingos, and the male emperor penguin. Not the female, but the male can. The production of this liquid begins about two days prior to the eggs hatching. So it's a hormonal trigger. So somehow the parent birds know that their babies are gonna hatch within 48 hours. And that triggers a hormonal um, response that helps them to start secreting, um, creating the crop milk. Not only that, but they stop eating. They stop eating because they need to digest whatever seeds are still in their crop so that they only have a liquid. Because the reason they create the crop milk is um, their babies and these particular birds cannot digest what they eat. They cannot digest seeds and the insects and the few little things that they pick up. So they have to create a liquid until their digestive tract is able to um, process the other foods. So um, crop milk is very high in nutrients and it also get passes antibodies, obviously, because it's coming from the adult. So it's very similar. It passes on antibodies and um, uh, positive bacteria to keep the birds healthy. And um, the nestlings receive the crop milk for a the first few days of life. And once um, they get between, I think it's three and five days, then the parents will start um, integrating um, slightly digested seeds or insects or I don't know, fish or penguin, emperor penguins, right. whatever, <laughs> you know, flamingos, what, what that, that's the krill. So they'll start integrating the food because by that time the baby's digestive tract is able to uh, digest it otherwise they'll be sick well that certainly is not something that all birds do no sounds very similar yes it is fascinating uh, interesting to know that it's not just mammals on the planet that uh, use milk for their young it's one of the successes though that's why one of the reasons these birds are so successful because also the crop milk um, helps them develop faster yes and keeps them going those very early stages which are the important moments of a young bird's life Wow, I don't know if I can top that one, but <laughs> another thing that is I'm very sure you can. <laughs> another one that is uh, very unique to the Columidae family is suction drinking. Now you're thinking suction drinking, why is that so special? Watch your birds when you look out in the backyard. Look at the birds that are at your bird bass, and you're going to notice they put their face down and then they pull it back up and they let the water dribble down their throat. Pigeons and doves in the Columidae family do not have to do that. Their beaks actually allow them to drink like we would with a straw. So they take their faces, they put it down in the water, they cover the sear with the water, and then they suck. So they don't have to drink at, like other birds do where they have to pull their heads back. So next time you see, before you bang the window to make them go away, if they're at your bird bath, watch them while they're drinking. And you're notice they're never gonna bring their head up. They're just gonna put their head down in that water and they're gonna drink, drink, drink. And that sucks right down into their esophagus. And it's, it's just amazing. And they can take in a lot of water in a short period of time. You can actually see them gulp. Yes. The swallow. Yeah, so water. definitely take a moment before you scare them away from your yard again uh, when they come and watch that. And an interesting part of that, I don't know which came first, but because of the way they drink, they actually need to drink more water than um, certain other birds. 
So whether those come hand in hand, I'm not, uh, we're not exactly sure which came first, the need to drink more water or the ability to drink water quickly. Uh, but yeah, suction drinking is the other thing that makes Columba Day birds unique and interesting. Wow. Yeah, so we've well, given you okay. a few things. We came head to head there. We didn't, we didn't top each other, but yeah, I very, think those very, are both interesting. Very, ones very there. fascinating facts. Okay, so we're going to talk about one last guy that we find at our feeders, and we'll talk about them. And I know Cheryl is going to tell us a few uh, interesting things about these guys, even though these are almost her terrible nemesis. I can yes, see the steam coming yes. out of her ears right now. <laughs> yes, these are like my very fascinating bird, but my least favorite bird. I think I take white wing doves over the great-tailed grackle. Um, oh. <laughs> right now, they're just really bothering me. And they're not even at my feeders. The great-tailed grackles, if you want to distinguish them from other blackbirds, the males are they're long-legged, they're slender uh, blackbirds, obviously. They have iridescent feathers, especially on the head, and the males do, and piercing yellow eyes. They have black bills, and both the male and the female, have, they're long-legged. The females are dark brown above, and they are buff-colored on the throat, and they do have a stripe um, above the eye. And they look menacing, <laughs> the, the girls do. So the gray-tailed grackle actually has expanded its range into the U U.S., the Southwest, up from Mexico. And here's something, going back to the 5,000 years with the pigeons, the grackles go back to the Aztecs in Mexico, and they actually, um, uh, the Aztecs went down into Central America they liked the grackle, the iridescent feathers they, mm. for their headdresses, and they brought them into Mexico. So that's what, 5,500 years mm -hmm. ago? And so, Thanks, we have Aztecs. to go back. Yes, I was just going to say, <laughs> we can thank them for bringing them closer to the U.S. Um, but with the development of our deserts, irrigated fields, because they're agricultural birds, they really are attracted to corns and, and grains, oats, and things like that. Suburban lawns, golf courses, shopping centers, and lots of trash, these birds have moved right in and have their, um, and they're moving. They're actually um, overtaking the common grackle, I believe that's on the East Coast. Hmm. So they're moving up there. Um, they nest in colonies of various of varying sizes, anywhere from um, 10 to 15 to hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, within these colonies, though, the males will stake out um, territories with several females. Um, they're not mon monogamous, don't worry, but don't be concerned about that because they're both promiscuous. But um, a male will stake out a territory. Female will choose, females will choose to nest within that territory because supposedly if he's worth anything, he's going to protect them from other males um, or other females, actually, because um, females are just as bad. Uh, destroying the nest or hurting the nestlings. The females build the nest, they incubate the eggs, and they raise the young. Um, grackles have a wide range of interests in what they will eat, grains, mine-eat junk food, <laughs> insects, small reptiles, small mammals, um, bird eggs, and nestlings. We've um, seen them eating candy. Yes, sticking lollipops in the um, bird bath. Yep. Trying to get yep. it off the... Yeah, making it nice and clean. Off and the then... stick, yes. <laughs> yes. And so when you see, um, the, especially the female grackle, this is how I saw interesting. In the summer and the early fall um, in the southwest, the female grackle's 80% of its diet is protein 
Wow. It doesn't come from uh, suet or peanuts. I mean, it's regular meat protein. Wow. Yeah, that was that's very... A, that's that, a high-protein meal there. Yes. Um, grackles use each other to find food. Oh, well, of course. If there's one grackle, right. that's why there's... You never just have one. You never like just have one. They, you can they, never just have yeah. one. <laughs> they do, um, and they can have mob behavior. So, yes, and I would just like them to move. <laughs> somewhere else <laughs> uh, well and that leads us right into our next topic yes the next thing we are going to talk about is what attracts them to our feeders and then how can we discourage them all right so let's talk about the specific seed that doves and pigeons are attracted to we did just say we did they're attacked say, into yes. garbage, yes. but there are some specific seeds that do that they seem to like a little bit better than others, which might attract them in larger numbers. And those seeds are? Well, one of them's millet. Most of the ground feeding birds here in Arizona like millet, and you want to pull back from white millet in particular. You want to pull back from distributing white millet, especially on the ground. All right, and the millet, if I go into a store and I'm looking at my seed, what exactly does a millet seed look like? Um, it's tiny and round. It's just a tiny, round, white uh, seed. The, there's also red milo. It's a little bigger. Trash seed or a junk seed. It's a filler seed. And then there's grass seeds. All of those seeds are going to attract your uh, doves and pigeons. All right. And it seems that they like that a bit more because it ends up on the ground one and they mm -hmm. are ground foragers, like we said. And those are ones that other types of birds don't necessarily like to eat. I know specifically the Milo. No one really eats that except for pigeons. Right. Because it doesn't have very much nutrition in it. It's kind of hard to digest. And so the <clears> pigeons <throat> will eat, like I said earlier, anything mm -hmm. that fits in their beak, they'll eat it. Yes. Okay. So when I'm looking for good seed, we want to try to avoid millet and Milo. Yes. They are, of course, attracted to other types of seed, just like the sunflowers and the safflower and stuff like that, that we provide our other birds. But these seem to be the ones that attract them in larger numbers. Well, yeah, because, um, well, doves, they'll swallow any seed that they can get in their beak and fits in their crop. But um, they prefer easily digestible seeds, which is what the millet and the uh, shelled seeds provide, like the sunflower chips. All right. Now, there are going to be other people listening that are not necessarily in our area, and I know that they say to feed millet there to collect sparrows to your yard, the ground feeders on yeah. the ground, which definitely is something that you can do here in the southwest region. But if you choose to have that millet and you're having dove and pigeon problems, then that might exacerbate your problem. And I do know that I do not feed out any millet at my house. I live Neither more in a desert I. area. And I still get uh, the white crown sparrow. They do come and they actually, I, I feed out thistle. And when it falls down to the ground, it does still attract those white crowned sparrows, which I love. They're adorable. I love to watch them eat. And it does cut down on the amount of morning doves that I attract. I do attract morning doves. You don't They're always. They're everywhere. They are everywhere. everywhere. And encouraging them to stay away is not going to be 100%. You're always going to have to have a few. Yeah. So you have to consider that when you are feeding how much do i how much do the doves really annoy me versus how much enjoyment do i get out of my other visitors yes and that's what i do so that brings us to how to feed we have different options on how to feed and what are some of our best options to avoid attracting our doves and pigeons well if you want to do loose seed 
tube feeder, then you would, if you don't want doves and pigeons on your um, feeders, you'd need a tray. But then if you have a tray, you need a cage. Okay. Or a, a guard over it. Okay. That allows, um, there's um, a diameter, a two-inch square that allows smaller birds in, but your doves and pigeons can't get in. Excellent. I think that sounds like a great idea. And I do know that a lot of our customers here do come in at our Mesa store and specifically ask for our pigeon guard. Yes. And I know that it fits on all of our tube feeders that are not our giant tube feeders. And uh, that's a good option. Most of them come back and say that it really has taken care of most of their problems. They may have a few doves here and there, but the majority of them have moved on to somebody else's house. Yes, it does work. Yeah. There are tray feeders that are very popular in other portions of the United States. And we do have people that come in and say, oh, well, I used to live in Illinois or I used to live in Michigan. I really love my tray feeder, which is a nice option if you don't have large quantities of doves and pigeons. Yes. Because as soon as you have that tray feeder out there, you're going to get lots and lots. Of... I, think, I think you could do tray feeding if you were further up north. Okay. Or um, not in an urban setting. Where, because, you know, doves and pigeons, they we just talked about how they congregate around urbanization and humans. So the further you get away from other people, then the more likely you can open tray feed and not have the um, n uh, nuisance birds of okay. pigeons and doves. All right. So some of our people that live up in uh, more of a forested area, or mm -hmm. if they're going out to their cabin to camp, you could try mm -hmm. doing a tray feeder there. Or even down um, south, uh, pa just past Tucson, or out to the southwest uh, or southeast, where it's uh, more country, a little more rural, they could probably do uh, tray feeding or hopper feeders, because hopper feeders are another um, way you can feed the birds. But um, again, <clears throat> it leaves an open area that is very attractive to pigeons and um, doves. All right. And hopper feeders, just in case those of you out there listening are not sure what they look like, they're the ones that look like the little houses mm -hmm. where you put seed in the middle and you open the top and put it in. It's like a hopper that you use to feed other types of animals. That's what a hopper feeder looks like. And I know here at our WBU Mesa store and many of the other WBU stores, they offer pigeon guards. Yes. They fit directly on those hopper feeders. And then also we do have some that fit our tray feeders that sit on the ground. Yes. And those um, have the same dimensions that the pigeon guard that goes around the tube feeder and allows in the smaller birds, but not the larger birds. There was one other thing I wanted to mention about tray feeders, especially if you're gonna use them on the grounds, the ones that sits on the grounds. I live more in a desert area and we have javelina. So when you tr think about doing a tray feeder, especially one that sits on the ground, you want to consider the other types of wildlife that you might be attracting. I personally love a javelina. I think they're amazing animals, but I do not want to bring them towards my home. I do not need them in my house. I do not need them near my dog, myself. I like to look at them from a distance. And that's something that you need to consider also. A lot of people in our suburban areas, if you use some sort of tray feeder, you might be attracting roof rats which is something they enjoy the same kinds of things that our pigeons and doves like to eat. And they are also very adept at living around humans. So that's another thing you want to consider. If you do a tube feeder that hangs in your tree, that is a little less attractive to the roof rats. And of course the javelina, they're smart, but they can't jump. Yeah. And so those are other things that you want to consider when you think about what types of feeders you want to use as well. And we do have, uh at uh, Wild Birds Unlimited, there 
Mesa store, there are um, things that we have baffles, we have other additions that you can add to your feeder that helps to uh, prevent or discourage uh, roof rants. We do have um, other things that can still help you to continue to feed and deal with the nuisance pests that we have in the area. All right. So we have yet to mention grackles coming to our feeders, oh. which Cheryl is right now going through a whole grackle situation at her house. But it is something to mention. Grackles aren't necessarily attracted to the food that you put out in feeders. I know that at my mother's house in Texas, she has grackles that come by and generally they don't bother any of her food except for when she has suet out. Sometimes they will try to get at her suet uh, but they don't tend to go for the seed quite as much. It's not a big part of their diet. Unless it's corn. Excuse me. Unless, yes, unless it is corn. Because they're agricultural birds. Yes, because they do like the crops. That's what they are attracted to. That's why they're living so well with us, as we mentioned before. And we do have a specific type of feeder here that will help you to keep them away, the grackles from your suet, if you are noticing that they're coming at it. And it is an upside down feeder. And it is specifically for birds that cling. So the suet is often offered for woodpeckers here in our area. The cactus wren really seem to like it. Thrashers like it. And they are all able to hang upside down or sideways a little mm -hmm. bit better than the grackle. They have better gripping. Better gripping. They're a slightly smaller bird. And their feet, like the woodpecker, are made specifically to hang on the side of something. Grackles have those long spindly legs with bigger bodies and it's harder for them to hang upside down. So if you notice that they are on your suet and you still want to feed out suet to your woodpeckers and your thrashers and your cactus wren, we have an upside down feeder that we have here in the Mesa store and many of our WBU stores will carry it. And you can ask anybody in the store when you come in, I'd like an upside down suet feeder. And it's actually pretty cute. It looks like a little house mm -hmm. and it... Uh, only allows them to eat the suet upside down. And then it's fun to watch the woodpeckers actually hang yeah. upside down yeah. and, and feed them. And the birds them. figure it out. Yeah, and it's fun to watch the cactus around. Those guys are really good at figuring out puzzles. So that takes care of seed and suet in our backyards. There is something else I know that does attract all of these guys too, and that's water. Mm -hmm. So we obviously live in the desert. We want to offer our birds water when we can, so what do we do if our water is attracting nuisance animals that we don't necessarily want? Do you have any good ideas for that? Well, I'd, with um, pigeons, well, you can remove the water and they'll go away. Okay. But then, of course, we're in the desert. Then you're in the desert. So you have to weigh how many pigeons you're getting. Um, is it really your bird bath or is it your neighbor's swimming pool? Um, that's attracting them or their neighbors, your neighbor's front yard fountain or the apartment complex's fountain. You're just getting the overflow. So you have to look at your surroundings before you actually make a serious determination. But if I had pigeons in my yard, yes, I would take down my bird baths and, um, I've done it with grackles cause they like water too. Just remove them for a couple of days and they'll find another place to hang out. Cause it's like a watering hole. It's like they're um, where they're gonna relax all afternoon in the heat because there's a reliable water source there. And we've learned through our, this podcast that pigeons and doves need to take on more water than um, your native birds. 
Right. I do also know that there are options too if you want to put out water for your smaller birds, your smaller finches, a hanging water hanging feeder. And wow. they look similar to some of the hummingbird feeders that you find those gravity feeders where they'll have a top and you fill it with water and then it comes down to a bottom that spreads out a little bit and lets the water come out. And you want to make sure if you're going to do that, that it has the ability for probably the birds to sit on it and enough room for them to pick up their heads. Because just like we said earlier, um, unless it's a pigeon or a dove, they have to be able to tip their head back. And I know that several of the WBU stores around the country and especially in a desert area will carry different types of hanging waterers. Mm -hmm. And that is an option to do for smaller ones, for smaller birds. Now, I know you're having a little bit of trouble with grackles in your backyard right now. Yes, I am. And yes. I know that it's not because you have feeders out there. So tell us what you made a decision on how you're going to handle these guys. All right. Well, I have some large tree. I have an oversized lot on a corner and I have some large trees. They've been there for about uh, 20 years and they're really hard to trim. So we've been letting them go. And we've um, just recently over the last couple of months been collecting quite a few grackles. Um, normally grackles are an issue in my yard. But, I mean, I'm not talking like th three to five. I'm talking 25, 50, 100 grackles, uh, 200 grackles, possibly, at one time. So, in doing research for this podcast, I realized that the grackles are not attracted to my trees because of my feeders. They're not on my feeders. They're not in my bird bath. They're becoming attracted to the area because of how high the trees are gives them a really comfortable roosting point and there's bird activity and unbeknownst to me until I did some reading that uh, I didn't realize how predatory they are while they're nesting and females in particular so females 80% of their diet in the summer and the early fall is non-seed and what does that mean that means they're eating meat and what did we list? And part of their uh, diet was nestlings and uh, eggs. And I thought, <clears throat> well, I can just let it go and see what happens. Because I'm concerned about my birds, nest, my, my birds, the birds I love, like the little goldfinches, nesting. But then I'm opening up to that predation. That predation. Right. And um, I couldn't live with myself. So I took my feeders down. It's early in the season. I took them down. I did it on Thursday. And we decided we were going to trim our trees. Okay. So we're going to cut four feet off of them. They're, that brings them down to 21 feet instead of um, 20. They're about between 25 and maybe a little higher. So we're going to bring them down to be 21 to 22 and see if that doesn't um, disperse our, our grackles. Okay. And in the meantime, um, I have feeders spread out through all my yard. So they're feeders are still on the east side of my yard, but I have no feeders on the west side of my yard because I didn't want birds nesting or thinking of nesting um, while we're trimming the trees. Right. And I can't, if there's a nest, we, we can't disturb it. So we'd have to trim around it and then that's leaving it open. So I thought the most humane thing to do for the songbirds that we're trying to conserve was to take my feeders down temporarily. All right. And a lot of it was people... tough. Yeah, I'm sure it's a tough... <laughs> I know you look at them every day and you're like, oh, no, I love them so much. And some people do come to us and we offer them that advice. And they are concerned that the birds aren't going to be able 
to eat, they aren't going to, they're going to starve. That's what we hear a lot is, oh, if I don't feed my babies, they're going to starve. And I want to assure everyone, yes. they are still wild birds. I they had come, to re, excuse me, Chris Kirsten, I had to reread that like several times right, to, to reassure myself reassure that yourself. I wasn't starving my little birds. Yes, they are wild animals. They will find a place to eat elsewhere. They come to us because we offer them something easy to get to, but they will survive. So if you take your feeders down for a couple of days, then it's okay. They will eventually come back. You'll see them all again and they'll be all right. Well, I hope we gave you guys some good information about problems that you might be having and yes. we will be looking forward to talking with you on our next podcast. Yes, thanks for listening.